This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. Politics of the United States. This week, the dark arts. How to play and win the game that so often feels like it has no rules. Chris Lehane, veteran Democratic operative and communicator, joins the conversation. Knife Fight is the name of his new movie coming out in 2012, and it details the inside story of how running for public office actually works and how ugly it can get. Then the Dean of Corporate Communications Executive Search, Bill Heyman, offers a masterclass for every polyoptics communicator out there thinking about the next steps in your career. I am joined, as always, though, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And for both of us, Josh, that was all about the optics and creating the visuals that brought the American presidency to the world. Adam, you and I focused our work uh, in the White House on the things that went in front of the camera, the settings, the stagecraft, the moment, often moments of joy, sometimes moments of sorrow that the world would share, seeing the president be presidential. Indeed. You know, but what happens when the president isn't so presidential? You know, and it's not just the land's highest office holder. You got senators, congressmen, governors, chiefs of staff. We could run through the litany of names, Josh, and and the variety of transgressions, but we would be here for a while. You know, these people in the public eye can be accused of doing bad things, too, often dredged up by political rivals and their so-called oppo research guys. Yeah, so the, the accusations fly, and you don't even know where they're coming from. You know, sometimes you don't know if they're true or not, and, you know, what do you, who do you call? Well, maybe the person you call is the master of disaster. Adam... His name is Chris Lahane, proud son of the state of Maine. When I was in the White House managing all the pomp and circumstance, Chris was holed up in a warren of offices in the old executive office building, combating the worst that Bill Clinton's accusers could dredge up about his character. Yeah, and he, you know, Chris came out from behind the scenes, and he'd offer his trademark one-liners to serve as Al Gore's press secretary in 2000, And how did that work out for him? He signed up with John Kerry for his race in 2004. That, too, didn't end up so well. But, you know, it's the scores of victorious skirmishes that never make the headlines. That's why Chris is constantly in high demand by politicians, corporations, entertainers, sports teams. You'd love to get him to write a book and dish on everything he's seen and heard, but, well, that would kill his business model. Indeed. So instead, he's turned to fiction and film to bring us behind the scenes of the most vicious form of political combat. He's the screenwriter, along with director Bill Gutentag, of Knife Fight, a film set for debut next year starring Rob Lowe, Carrie Ann Moss, Jamie Chung, and an all-star cast. Chris Lehane, who now joins us on Polyoptics, couldn't they have cast someone better looking than Rob Lowe to play you? And a follow-up, just like Leonardo DiCaprio did with J. Edgar Hoover, did Lowe have to wear prosthetic teeth to match your signature devilish grin? 
Well, I mean, it's clearly fiction, right? Because there's no way Rob Lowe is anywhere close to as good looking as I am. Yeah, indeed. Right, right, right. I mean, they've always told me, right? I have a face for radio and a voice for print. So. They tell you that too. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for having me. <laughs> Chris, uh, how did it come about that a guy who spends so much of his time in those spin control settings finds time to actually write a script and become the uh, the screenwriter of a, a film to debut next year? Yeah, well, let me first say that I, you know, I'm not giving up my day job quite yet. Uh, but you know, the quick background on this is I was actually given a speech um, at the Stanford Business School. I do a basic uh, speech on crisis management, the Ten Commandments of uh, of crisis communications. And um, in the audience was uh, Bill Gutentag, who, as you noted, a two-time or multiple-time Oscar-winning director, uh, originally comes out of the Law and Order TV series. Um, uh, and he approached me after the presentation, and it was to a bunch of business school kids and, and others, and asked, would you ever be interested in you know, pursuing a, uh, a fiction uh, movie on this? And uh, you know, I'd been approached in the past by some people, but no one with his type of credentials and his type of credibility who I thought would do this in the type of way that you know, I would ultimately be comfortable with. And, and from his perspective, he had any number of times actually tried to do the behind-the-scenes look at a presidential campaign uh, but ultimately, was always frustrated in, in his in his projects because, as we all know, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you get into the room, but you never ultimately get into the room behind the room. Um, and you know, there's a proverbial door shutting, and then the real decisions are made. Uh, and so, as a result of where he was coming from and the presentation that I that I had given, uh, you know, we basically sat down and you know, over a couple month period, uh, came up with a script. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, uh, you know, had it picked up and we're suddenly off to the races. And, uh, you know, some of the aspects, you know, for all of us who've done campaigns, there's, you know, there's some similarities. You go from an idea to a mom and pop business to what feels like a Fortune 500 company in a very small time. And then it all gets taken apart. Uh, but it's been a great experience thus far. The Room Behind the Room, and it's a place that uh, Adam and I have been on occasion, yeah. but I'm sure not nearly as many times as you, Chris. And let's let's hear a little bit about how your Bill's writing turned into Rob Lowe's dialogue as he is uh, probably in the minivan behind the minivan. If you are crazy enough to do this, everything will be on the public record from the dope that you smoked and your college lesbian experimentation period. And if that doesn't do it, new facts will be made up so they can destroy you. Done? Not yet. You have got to be the person who is willing to bring a gun to a knife fight. Absolutely riveting. The guy who brings a gun to a knife fight. You know, I would prefer to describe you, Chris, as a samurai. Uh, somebody who is a warrior, who is discreet, who is uh, just born of so much experience in hand-to-hand combat at a political level. When you came up with the name of this film and you... you, you created this dialogue did you even imagine it was going to be as resonant as it, as it now appears it's going to be as we go into the the 2012 campaign well you know I, I think when we entered into this we didn't think there would be any shortage of scandals or crises out there because i do think we live in an information age where uh you know where sca- crisis and scandal are really uh part of the process uh, on on virtually an everyday basis you know when we were filming this uh in literally a two-week period we had, you know, the, the Anthony Weiner issue. We had the Strauss-Kahn issue. We had the Schwarzenegger issue. And, and these were literally breaking as we were filming. And I remember distinctly we were filming a scene at one point which involved uh, the Rob Lowe character engaging with a candidate's spouse. 
you know, on a particularly sensitive issue when it was a very, very intense conversation. And we took a break, and it was the same day that, uh, that then-Congressman Wiener was doing his, his infamous press conference. Uh, and there was a surreal element to it, right? You were sort of filming stuff and watching it, the, 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 almost the other side of the room taking place in, in real life uh, as you were going through this. You know, the name of the film is, is, is Knife Fight, and it really comes from a quote that, that I had given to the New York Times uh, when they asked, you know, what the campaigns have become like in the last two or three weeks. And I said, every campaign ultimately becomes a knife fight in a telephone booth, and, and that was the derivation of the name. But ultimately what we're really trying to do, and you guys, I think, will in particular appreciate this given what you have done with your careers and where you have been, but I think ultimately trying to show people a sense of what does take place in those rooms behind the room, but also really get at the fact that um, uh, oftentimes in politics, you have to use some of the darkest means to achieve very noble ends. I think all of us have worked for people that we genuinely believe, uh, at least from our perspective, have made the world a much better place. Uh, but to win in politics, you know, there's, there's a certain way you have to play, and that's just the reality, and this film tries to deal with that tension. Let's talk about some of those dark means, Chris. Uh, 20 years ago, I'm running around the United States, again, the pomp and circumstance, making Bill Clinton look good in front of the camera. You were up in the state of Maine as his uh, as his uh, communications director for Maine. You're coming out of Amherst College and Harvard Law School. How does Chris Lehane learn the dark arts of political campaigning? That's a great question. You know, I really benefited enormously from having grown up in Maine. It's a small state uh, with a relatively small political community. And so at a relatively young age, I was able to get involved in politics. I worked, uh, you know, in high school and college uh, for the then governor, uh, Joe Brennan, did a little work for Senator Mitchell um, and other elected officials in the state and candidates uh, uh, at a very, very young age. Um, uh, and, and as a result and consequence of that, really we're exposed to things that typically if you're in a bigger state, you're not exposed to because it takes a lot longer to reach those types of levels. Uh, and so I think, you know, being a relatively mid-sized fish in a small pond, you know, really worked to my advantage as I was able to develop uh, skills and, and, and an experience that typically one would not get at that young of an age. Um, and look, I think like anyone in, in, in this business, there are some folks, uh, and you guys are definitely falling into this category, right, who have instincts for this uh, and have a sense of how it's played. Some people, and we've all heard this phrase, right, some people, quote, unquote, get it. Uh, and I think that, you know, that becomes pretty clear in the political process who does and who doesn't. And one of the beauties of a campaign is that it really is a meritocracy, right? You know, at the end of the day, people are going to be voting. People need to have product produced. You need to have results. And people who are able to deliver can move up pretty quickly and, 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 you know, in turn gather and generate even more experiences. You know, one of the things that uh, was a very formative experience in my career as a, as a journalist was uh, covering the impeachment of President Clinton. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you learn early on is that even with some of the black hat stuff that we're discussing, that the principal, your own principal, the candidate uh, or the president can be his own worst enemy. And we've seen perhaps a little bit of that this week for President Obama. We'll get to it later. But I want to take you back to the late 90s and play you some sound. You, when we talk about your experience and where you've been, what you've done and who you've counseled, will remember this. And I want you to take us through it because it's hard to be Chris Lehane in the face of a situation like this. I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely 
and completely responsible. The sound there uh, brings us right back to the middle of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. But as we understood the president taking us away from the definitive it never happened to where we are, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you put that out there and work on moving forward from there, Chris? It's a great, great question. Uh, and you know, hopefully it's actually one of the elements that we really explore in this film. I mean, my fundamental belief um, is that you don't get the great outsized talent. Uh, and this is a generalization. This is not uh, this isn't a cut to every single person who's in politics. But there's often an interrelationship between the great talents that make someone an effective leader and the frailties that they have. Uh, and there's a line in the movie that you know that I've often said in, in presentations. But you know, you don't you know an FDR uh, who did amazing things for the country was having affairs. Uh, a Dwight Eisenhower who did D-Day, two-term Republican governor, uh, you know, allegedly had a relationship with his secretary. Uh, the LBJ uh, issues have been well documented. Obviously, the Bill Clinton issue that you just went through. Uh, there is an interrelationship, I think, between the enormous strengths some of these folks have uh, and the frailties that they have as, as human beings. I think everyone you know, has that. I think with politicians, particularly at the top levels, there's often uh, a mirror image between their great strengths and their weaknesses. And the ones that are successful are the ones that are really able to focus on the strengths and, and minimize or diminish uh, how their frailties impact them. But that, that is something. I mean, people are imperfect to begin with. And you know, when I worked for a President Clinton, uh, which was a great honor, uh, and when I worked for other folks, uh, you know, my approach has always been that you know, recognize these people are flawed. They're human beings, and you have to take them in their totality. And in their totality, you know, are they doing good things for the world and, and for society? And I think you look at the Clinton situation, and, and the public basically got that. I mean, I think they had a pretty good sense of who they had elected twice for president. And I think they, at, at the end of the day, and obviously he left office with the highest job approval rating in history, um, they were pretty pleased with what they got. But I don't think that, that they were under any illusions about what the strengths and what the weaknesses were. And, and they made that, uh, they factored that in, in, in terms of how they viewed and, and analyzed them. And again, that's one of the themes that we really sort of poke at in this film, looking at a couple of the characters who do bring enormous strengths to their job, but also are flawed people and how their flaws get them into trouble and how they deal with that. Uh, and I do think that, you know, particularly in this day and age, when all these flaws and all the strengths, you know, ultimately get exposed, that's one of the reasons why we are in this constant state of crisis. I, you know, I was just thinking the other day about Elliot Spitzer, and you know, in particular, given where we are with questions about, you know, economic justice. And, you know, here was a guy who did, you know, depending on your perspective, but certainly from my perspective, did enormous good on economic justice issues, but obviously had a significant flaw. Uh, and I think that that is that sort of goes to the heart of, of, of one of the key issues that we explore in this film. Talking about flaws of major national candidates, Chris, uh, in 2000, as Adam alluded to at the beginning, you sort of came out from behind the curtain and you said, it's time for me to ride the campaign plane, to be the voice of the candidate, to be much more public than I had been uh, during the Clinton years. And uh, talk about flaws, there was something about Al Gore that didn't quite get enough votes in Florida to make his victory a clean uh, win of those electoral votes. And let's hear how it concluded as a result of what the Supreme Court said. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. I offered to meet with him as soon as possible so that we can start to heal the divisions of the campaign and the contest through which we've just passed. Chris, uh, 
bring us to the... To <laughs> na- <laughs> Could be a depression, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Uh, bring us to Nashville, Tennessee, and yeah. and that election night. And uh, w- you know, what? How did you feel during those the months of the run-up, uh, ru- doing that general election, being the voice of the campaign as opposed to the practitioner of the dark arts defending President Clinton, and what you would hope to have that night in Nashville, and what resulted instead? Uh, you know, first and foremost, it was you know an unbelievable uh, life experience. Uh, uh, and obviously, you would uh, relate some of my activities at the White House, and in both, you're you know effectively a, a, a fly on the wall to history. Uh, but there's nothing that really can compare to a hard-fought, competitive presidential campaign in terms of the intensity. And you know, in particular, when when you're a public spokes- spokesperson, in my position, I was the press secretary. You know, after you know, arguably the, pre- the 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 nominee, the vice president at that point, uh, his spouse, and 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 the vice presidential uh, candidate at that time, Joe Lieberman. You know, you're sort of one of the people that's out there exposed the most. And you know, every single day you get up and you're on a tightrope uh, without a safety net, uh, with people taking shots at you all day. Uh, and I think you do have to have a certain temperament to enjoy it uh, and, and appreciate it for what it is. Uh, but let me put it this way. I started off with a full head of hair, and I ended that campaign with a lot less hair uh, than I started with. Um, and, you know, election night, uh, obviously, historical moment, but I almost felt like I experienced that it was like the – Worldwide, uh, worldwide sports. Remember the old, the old beginning. Of the, the agony of defeat. <laughs> agony of the, the, the agony of defeat at the victory. All, all in one evening. We went from, uh, you know, Florida being called for gore, as I'm sure folks remember, and everyone jumping up and down and celebrating and hugging and kissing. And literally, I had you know the various network anchors and other folks calling me to congratulate and schedule dinners and lunches and uh, and people referring to him as president elect. To you know, half an hour, 45 minutes later. You know, the situation suddenly changing and, you know, the, the room being empty, the room being very quiet. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, it's called a roller coaster is a bit of a cliche and really doesn't capture what it was like. And then the evening wore on uh, and obviously it became, you know, more and more apparent. That it was very unclear what, in fact, had taken place in, uh, in Florida uh, because of the issues with the amount of, of phone calls being made. You literally had a difficult time making any cell phone calls to even get, you know, basic pieces of information. Uh, the motorcade went to where uh, the vice president was scheduled to give a concession speech. Uh, we're in a hold and uh, in the bowels of sort of this public arena, outdoor facility, uh, and the vice president and Bush end up having, you know, their famous conversation. Uh, but it really was an unbelievable. I, I always also remember coming back to the hotel that night, and, you know, we got back at about 2 or 3 had a lengthy strategy session, and I came back to the hotel at that point publicly at about 6 a.m. And, uh, you know, the press and everyone was really in the dark as to what was going on and, and what was happening. And uh, I just wandered into the lobby and went to go to the bathroom and literally had 50 or 60 members of the press, like, chase me into the restroom. Um, uh, and, and, and so I came out and I walked over to a press room and went up and stood on, uh, at, at the podium uh, just to basically give people a sense of what we were thinking and, and, and what to expect over the course of the day. And at the back of the room, we had the big TV screen set up for the three networks and, and the cable outlets. Uh, it was originally the ballroom where people were, were in the night before. And as I began to address folks, I looked up and saw that each of the networks and the cable folks were basically breaking in to their regular program to come to me live. <laughs> and I realized at that point, I really didn't know what I was going to say. Uh, and it was just, you know, it was an unbelievable uh, uh, time period. And obviously, you went through the Florida recount process, uh, which was a little bit like, you know, death by a thousand blows on an everyday basis. 
every week here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Series 6 and 124, we, we try and engage on the issues of uh, political theater, the elements of visual communication, but it all gives way to the context uh, with which people view or appreciate both policy, but most definitely their leaders. And Chris Lehane, who joins us uh, in this segment today, is uh, a master. And he's also somebody who, having been through so many different battles and wars, has taken his uh, expertise and his long experience and turned it to, uh, in, the, in, the pub, in the private sector. And, and I know a lot of the work that you do, Chris, uh, is for... Uh, leading folks and even in the sports uh, arena um, and obviously it's no uh, no surprise to folks that sports is a place where crisis communications often creeps up and you could do no better than to have Chris giving you guidance but we want to get your take a little bit on this uh, scandal as sad as mm-hmm. it is that continues to unfold uh, at Penn State uh, people have heard uh, the details, and I don't want to drag us down into the the sort of details. But just this week, uh, we finally put a voice to the name, and uh, Bob Costas brought this to us. Well, in retrospect, I you know I I shouldn't have showered with those kids. You know, so that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what hits me the most. Gary Sandusky, uh, charged with uh, numerous counts of uh, sexual abuse of underage minor boys. Uh, this is something that has rocked this community in Happy Valley in Pennsylvania, but it's the reverberations of which are being felt across the land. Chris, what's your take on this, and, and would you have ever counseled uh, a client, uh, regardless of the specificity here, to, uh, to run out and do a phoner like this? <laughs> No, I, I mean, first of all, uh, just so I uh, obviously reinforce the notion that this is just a tremendous tragedy what took place there. Um, you know, in terms of the decision to make that interview, clearly not someone who is being counseled or thinking about this, you know, in any type of a uh, of a professional way. First of all, the guy has significant legal exposure, uh, so going out and doing an interview uh, where those very words will be, you know, undoubtedly used against him to undermine his veracity. Um, and credibility, uh, you know, is just a basic legal mistake. And then above and beyond that, there is nothing that he can do in the short term uh, to, you know, fundamentally address the issue. I mean, he is in the proverbial deep, dark, unspinnable place uh, to the extent, and, you know, I don't think this is the case at all based on everything that we have read and seen, but to the extent that he has a story to tell or a narrative to tell or an explanation um, you know, that needs to come out over the long haul, and it will be done through the legal process. And there are different mechanisms and modes that you can use through the legal process to put the information out in a strategic way. Going on and doing a phoner, uh, you know, on, 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 on Bob Costas' show, while great for Mr. Costas, you know, is certainly not a smart thing to do. You know, more broadly speaking, one of the things I've been struck by in this whole process, and I'm sure you guys have as well, which is really just sort of how flat-footed the university has been um, and it's particularly at the front end. I mean, they had to have some inkling of what was going on. There's a grand jury proceeding. Their lawyers and their personnel were engaging with the grand jury. How they could not have had a basic plan in place you know, to deal with this, you know, either proactively or if and when it became public, you know, to me, that is a, a really puzzling situation. This is a major university, uh, a lot of money tied up into this. They have a lot of professional people on board. 
Um, universities and other institutions face grand juries and these types of legal proceedings all the time, and people do put plans in place. See, that's um, the thing that I, I think is so interesting. When we talk about, you use the word proactive, and, and I immediately thought, okay, there's reality, and then there's the perception of reality. Yeah. To have been proactive in this case would have been literally to get in front of it in some way, so that the narrative arc that started with yep. uh, the press would have been something that could have been preempted by action and and uh, creating a narrative that started first with the university. But it, the direct opposite is what happened. Not only yep. did it start with legal proceedings and arrest and all of this, the university had its finger in the air, in my opinion, waiting to see not only what was going to happen, but how long they could hold out before they needed to do the next thing, which was, is it tenable to, to, to keep uh, Joe Paterno as the coach? And then finally, yeah. they realized that Paterno was spinning. I'll yeah. retire. And they knew yeah. at that point they couldn't let it go that far. You're 100% right. I mean, anytime you find yourself in, in, in a crisis situation, there are, you, know, you can boil it down to three basic principles. You know, principle one, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Uh, their conduct, you know, effectively uh, was the combination of they continue to dig, and if, to the extent there was fire, they threw more fuel on themselves. Now, principle number two, every single action and step uh, that you take must be through the prism of how do I protect my institution's credibility or my personal credibility, uh, because this is going to be a long-term story, uh, and the best and single most important thing that you can do is to protect your credibility going forward. People get the fact that something bad has happened. You're never going to change that. You're never going to change what has happened in the past. People judge you by whether they think you're being forward, trustworthy, and straight and honest about the situation. And then really the third principle is, uh, and this goes exactly to what you were uh, talking about, which is have a plan, stick to it, execute upon it, and be disciplined and don't get lost in the, in the fog of a crisis. And, you know, and really each and every one of those principles uh, you know, Penn State simply just did not, uh, uh, you know, execute or, or, or really have an understanding of how this how this plays out. From universities to uh, presidential campaigns, and we're a few months away from the Iowa caucuses and the beginning of the uh, Republican nominating process. And Chris, you you say that the last few weeks of a campaign are like a knife fight in a phone booth, but <clears throat> it feels to me and Adam, as we've talked about this every week, that there is opposition research rife throughout this campaign already. Mm -hmm. And if you think of the, and you know, you sometimes partner with a, a similar practitioner on the other side, Steve Schmidt. And so I'd, I'd love you to sort of take our listeners through the real process of how the media ends up understanding the name of Rick Perry's hunting ranch, yep. or the fact that Newt Gingrich has a line of credit at Tiffany's, yep. or that there was a long ago uh, settlement about a hara sexual harassment claim for Herman Cain. What is really going on here? Because it's not like uh, Savannah Guthrie is digging this stuff up herself. As talented as Savannah is. As um, talented as we, much as we love her. Yes, yes. Well, you know, we have a saying in Maine, you know, if you go to bed at night and there's no snow on the ground and you wake up and there's snow on the ground, you can pretty safely conclude that it snowed. Um, you know, when you look at stories that are out there, uh, stories along the lines of the ones that you just listed, uh, while I don't know this in every single situation, you know, I think it is a pretty uh, smart bet, you know, that those are stories that had some uh, origination uh, by some opposition researcher out there uh, on behalf of some type of campaign. So let me, to your question, you know, sort of take you through the process, which is campaign begins, you know, one of the first things that you do, typically even before you actually formally announce or, or engage in the process, 
is you retain uh, researchers who will first do opposition research on yourself. I've had this happen time and time again, that you will do the opposition research on your own candidate, uh, and they typically will give you some version of the following statement, which is, well, I never knew so much about myself. Um, uh, because there's just so much information out there that's in the public domain, uh, everything from your college transcripts to various public filings that you have made, to various public uh, uh, orations that you have made. All this stuff is captured out there in some form or fashion. So you do the oppo research on yourself, and then concurrent with that, you begin to do the oppo research um, on the various opponents that you will face. Once you collect that information, and, and I, when I do it, I call it the arsenal of democracy, because I like to believe I'm on the side of truth, justice, and democracy. But in any case, once, once you collect it, you begin to think, how am I going to deploy these things? You know, typically, you have some, some elements that will be you know, a little story. Sometimes you have elements that will be a bigger story. But the real art of this is really trying to figure out how you're going to take the facts that you've assembled and create a narrative. Uh, and campaigns can really be boiled down to the following. This assumes it's a competitive race, which is that each candidate will have their positive storyline. Each candidate will have a negative storyline. The campaign that wins is the campaign that does the best of emphasizing their positive, diminishing their negative, and emphasizing their opposition's negative. Uh, and opposition research really comes into play by how you begin to distribute that information in a way that feeds that negative storyline of your opponent and does it in a way with a sequencing approach so that it begins to build upon itself. Uh, in and of itself, it obviously puts enormous pressure and stress on the opposition. Uh, and in a lot of cases, and you've already seen this in this campaign, particularly with Perry and some others, Kane, uh, candidates oftentimes don't handle that type of pressure. It's a, it, 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 and, and it leads to subsequent stories in terms of how they handle it and manage it. In addition to that, once you begin to create these storylines, you know, all sorts of things that begin to come in over the transom, not only to you, but to the other campaigns and to the press, because then there is the proverbial blood in the water, uh, and all sorts of things begin to crop up from that. But really, at the end of the day, it is you, know, you assemble the information, uh, you pull it together, you think about how you're going to deploy it. But the art of all of this is creating a storyline and doing it in a way that where it builds upon itself, and it becomes an ongoing, protracted uh, uh, process that hopefully defines your opponent in a way that uh, really impacts how voters perceive him or her, uh, particularly in a day and age when these elections really do come down if they're competitive to what are effectively character tests. And the central question in such a race is, does a candidate earn the public trust or are there specific questions about whether the public can trust that person? You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting is uh, the public gets even more savvy than they've ever been before mm -hmm. is this appreciation that the substance of the story can, in, in instances be secondary to where it came from. Um, so who's carrying this water? And you talk about uh, you know, sort of putting a, a storyline out there. To have gathered opposition research and to, to strategically decide not only when for effectiveness or if it's a nuclear option, we'll only go there if, uh, give us some insight into you know, as things come over the transom to campaigns, so too do they go in the other direction. Um, there is a sometimes all too close and cute uh, relationship that exists between political journalists and campaigns where everyone's looking for a scoop and to have a story that you can go vet yourself and then carry forward as your own work. Sometimes those things came from places no one wants to admit. Yeah, well, I'm actually saying a couple things too. Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, my basic belief is that this is good for the process. Your single hardest day on the campaign trail uh, is really going to be your single easiest day if you're the president of the United States. Uh, and part of the presidential process is really to test the mettle of these candidates. So you know, in and of itself, 
uh, how these folks handle this uh, is, is a real test uh, of whether they're going to be up to the job of, of, of being president, and it does really serve a public purpose. Uh, these people are who they are. Uh, ultimately, everything that comes out about them. Uh, and the, and the storylines that we've talked about really only work if they actually reflect a truism. Uh, now, oftentimes they become caricatures, and, uh, and, and there are exaggerations associated with it in terms of how it plays out. But within those caricatures, there is a reality. And so the, the, it only really works if it's actually playing to uh, 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 something that, in fact, exists. Now, in terms of how you actually deal with folks on this, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there are part of the who, when, where, and why uh, is identifying, you know, those reporters who may have a particular interest in the story. There are some reporters who are interested in financial stories. There are some reporters who are interested in policy stories. And so part of it is being selective of where you're going to uh, potentially take a story to. Now, in, you know, I should also really emphasize that particularly with the mainstream press, these people are professionals. You just don't give them something um, uh, and, and assume it's going to get written, uh, even if you give them room service with a ribbon tied to it <laughs> and a flower with it, right? I mean, these are professional reporters. They go back. They do the, their due diligence. Oftentimes, they come up with more stuff, better stuff. Uh, oftentimes, they look at a story, uh, uh, do some reporting on it, and decide it doesn't really prove out or test. Um, and so it is, but, but it is part of the process. There is a symbiotic relationship that exists between uh, the, the fourth estate who are covering this and the various folks on the campaign who are interacting with them. I will also say, though, that just because you give a story to a reporter, they happen to report on it, they happen to determine it's a real story, and they write on it, doesn't mean the next day your opponent will call them up and give them a story on you, <laughs> and they'll be equally excited and interested in, you know, in, in taking that story against you. It is part of the process. You know, in the film, we actually have a funny scene where we have the, the Rob Lowe character and Jamie Chung, who's his assistant, um, doing a series of sit-downs where they do their uh, no fingerprints, here's the information, don't source this back to us, here's how you get the information. So we really actually show in a particular scene how those conversations typically take place with a reporter, how the information is generated, how it's handed over, then how it ultimately manifests itself uh, in a story about the opponent. Um, but yeah, no, you, you know, this ultimately comes down to you know, one-on-one interactions with reporters and determining who you think would be interested in the story, which publication will give it the biggest play, who will think it is something that really deserves serious reporting. That is what makes me so excited about this movie. Glad to have you on in this realization that it's not just mano a mano. This is a knife fight where you got more than two knives at play. It may be in a phone booth, but let me tell you, you have no idea who you're sticking in. It may well be yourself. <laughs> that's, absolutely what, that's absolutely the case, isn't it? Chris Lehane, uh, from drawing caricatures of current candidates to actually playing characters on the silver screen, Rob Lowe as Chris Lehane in the upcoming film out in 2012, hopefully in time for the heart of election season. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, and we'll make sure that uh, we give you guys a, uh, an exclusive premiere when we get closer. That was a great conversation with Chris Lehane, wasn't it, Adam? Oh, it was tremendous. I mean, talk about somebody who everyone in Washington knows, and it doesn't matter if you're a D or an R, you have respect for people like Chris who have been there and done that and possess the uh, the ability, as he said, to not get lost in the fog of war. 
And you know, when you start out, as Chris talked about, in Maine and start to learn the tactics and skills of being a, in political communications, you never know where it's going to end and what you're going to do once you start acquiring those talents. And we've had on this show, just in, the, in our previous episodes, we've had White House Press Secretaries Joe Lockhart, Jake Seward, Ari Fleischer, Dee Dee Myers. We've had directors of communications like Kevin Sullivan and Don Baer and people who've made incredible careers after their turn uh, on the stage. And myself as an example, I mean, I worked in the White House for six years and I've been in corporate communications for about 10. And I think, Adam, that a lot of people who listen to our show on a weekly basis, they might be press secretaries on the Hill or they might work in the White House or a cabinet agency or department, and they say, well, this has been an amazing ride, and after my candidate or office holder leaves office, I either go back into another campaign, or maybe I go to law school or business school, or maybe I take these skills that I've acquired and bring them back, uh, bring them outside into the private sector to serve a corporation or an organization or a university. And the one of the people who is the dean of the executive recruiting business for corporate communications is Bill Heyman, founder and chairman of Heyman Associates. And there are so many people that I've worked with uh, who have made that bridge from politics and political communications into corporate communications, thanks to Bill Heyman's mentoring, preparation, quizzing, deciding whether you think you have what it takes and you can transfer those skills into corporate communications. And I thought as we, I know that a lot of our listeners, Adam, are those people who are on the Hill or at the White House and thinking about what do I do next? I wanted to bring the dean of that process in to sort of share some of the things that he's learned over a long career that makes him at the very peak of helping people move from political communications into the corporate world. Bill, welcome to Polyoptics. Josh, thanks to you and Adam for having me. And since I started my career in education, I guess I'm not offended by being considered a dean. It doesn't make me feel that old. So thanks for having me. Um, We've talked a lot about uh, this over many years and as recently as this week, but what are the skills that you found from people of different generations, the Clinton years, the Bush years, and now the Obama years, that you've been able to help transition into the corporate world? Well, I think the key aspect of transitioning from that kind of a life into the corporate world is that you have to understand, and Chris used great terms, he used to, your strengths and your frailties. And I think that one of the challenges that we face as recruiters is that we find very talented people that have the kind of experience that folks like you had, folks like Joe Lockhart, folks like Chris have, Mike McCurry, on and on. And the reality is that there are certain strengths you develop in those kinds of jobs, but it doesn't always transfer easily into the corporate world. And I always think about the the whole notion of if you just differentiate between what a press secretary does and what a director of communications does, is it's the press secretary that sometimes has a really hard time coming into a job where what the CEO wants or what the president of a college wants is real strategy all the time and not just necessarily somebody who can do great reactive work. You know, it will surprise many listeners, I think, that, and you can tell us sort of what level of organization <clears throat> starts to starts to 
uh, supply this level of a communications department, but but any sort of public company that needs to put out quarterly filings and a CEO with a platform who needs to give occasional speeches, both either to their employees or out to the world or go on CNBC, they almost have a replica of a communications office that you'd find in a campaign. What do corporations really tend to put together in terms of the the skill set for communications? Well, I think as much as anything, and this is one of the critical components, if I, as I was thinking about this when I was on the subway coming over here today, that, you know, if I think about what is it that clients seek the most, I would argue that what they seek the most, especially if I'm thinking about corporate communications, is business acumen. So I could argue that the one thing you may not learn in politics until a little bit later on is business acumen. So understanding, and that meaning that these guys, if you take someone like example, let's just use a person like Jeff Immelt. So Jeff Immelt has been um, at GE his whole career. They've had some tremendous success with um, uh, corporate communications people that have come out of the political arena. But those people aren't necessarily doing the financial communications for him. Those people aren't the ones that are talking to Wall Street for him. They may be talking about some of the critical issues that are making GE's various um, business units uh, successful or not successful. So I think that, I also think that if your your experience has been overly uh, domestic, that many corporations aren't going to be as interested in you as they would be if you've got more global experience. And then I think also just understanding that internal audience. So if your focus has been externally, external, excuse me, the internal audience you know, trying to rally the troops, trying to create loyalty, trying to say, again, I'll use the GE example. So GE, if you think about things like eco-imagination and the focus on the environment, or healthy imagination and the focus on uh, health care, that's a very different GE than the one 20 years ago. So you have to be able to sell that inside the company before you sell it you know, externally. One of the things that I always wonder uh, with the work that you do, uh, and then Josh touched on it, is this aspect of mentoring because in order to be uh, playing at the highest level uh, which you clearly do in your firm uh, and its reputation so well known it means not only finding exactly or understanding what the client needs but helping to to see deep inside candidates and understand do they have that potential and what more need they do what coaching might they need to become the best version of themselves. How much time and energy goes into something like that? From an evaluation standpoint, that's a huge part of our job. In other words, if you think about the folk, the fact that we only specialize in this area of recruiting, you know, public relations, corporate communications, public affairs, government relations professionals, so in a fairly defined segment of the, um, uh, the business world, if you think about that, what we actually, you know, in the, the coaching part, a lot of it has to do with the intangible. So those, so you, you kind of, you, you, you understand somebody's a good writer, you understand somebody's got a good reputation dealing with the press, you can understand if they're a quick thinker, but if their uh, ability to translate that into sort of the intangibles, and I'm talking about their management skills, their ability to listen their ability to uh, advise without being too preachy, in other words, to be able to take sort of that, that you know, ability to have good eye contact with somebody and really be able to seem sincerely like you're paying attention to what it is that their, their, their dilemma is. I would also argue, by the way, that one of the tough things about the transition that folks like you have had to make is that you're dealing at such a high level 
that you have a natural and, and you hit on the, you hit it on the head, Adam. That these people come to us with these expectations of saying, "Well, I, I was the press secretary for so and so. I think I should be the chief communications officer for Apple." Well, it's just not going to happen. You know, for me, it's been, uh, and I've talked to Josh about this because he's not only a friend of mine and a partner here at Polyoptics, but he's mentored me a bit. And this has been one of the hardest transitions uh, of my life, having moved away from broadcast journalism and into political communications and then moving into uh, consultant work and, and strategic communications. And Josh has done it so incredibly well. It occurs to me that the seasoning and the experience that you gather in each uh, realm of your life builds upon itself. But I always hearken back to the words of uh Don Rumsfeld, who used to say, you know, it's unknowable. You don't know what you don't know. And, and those are the things I would imagine uh, that, that make your crystal ball so sought after by CEOs and folks who are trying to find people that they can groom, that they can grow with. Uh, but but is, is, are the raw materials really there, Josh? Is that a fair way to put it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely how I feel about it. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Rumsfeld quote, because I constantly talk to clients about one of the things that makes good candidates good candidates is they know what they don't know. You know, we were talking to Chris Lahane earlier, and, and Bill, you heard the conversation, and you t- you heard about his uh, his moment um, after the campaign at 6 in the morning uh, at the conclusion of the Bush v. Gore on election night. And, you know, so much of being the effective communications person is being the person that you that either the principal or the people who rely on the information from that director of communications likes to spend time with, likes to have a conversation with, likes to uh, I, forge a real relationship with. And one of the things that you've often said, to, as you say, well, here's the great opportunity that you might consider, but and you may be a great practitioner of communications. But you need to be the type of person that that organization wants to have around, wants to bring to the table, wants to go on a long journey with, because there's a lot of hours and you need to uh, you need to be able to, as you say, have that business acumen, have that curiosity, have that conversational ability. And can you put it all together in a package between the, the technical expertise and the functional capabilities with the, the personality that really works? Yeah, and I would argue that's that's sort of what we try to uh, predict as our sort of or say is our special sauce, which is the because you're what you're really talking about is likability. In other words, is this a person that I'm going to want to spend time with? If I'm the president of a college or university, or I'm the head of a foundation, or I'm president of a corporation, and I'm interviewing you know, Adam or Josh for my senior job, I'm saying, is this a person I want to spend time with? Is this a person I want to hang out with? And sometimes that's that's just finding out that you're a Red Sox fan or just finding out that there's something that you've had or believing that, you know, you dealt with a particularly difficult issue in your life along the way, whether it be in the workforce or some other way. But that creates a likability, that creates a bond, that therefore you build that relationship on. I, I always think about the fact that we did a search years ago for a, a Pittsburgh-based company and uh, I had the chance to sit with the uh, CEO of this company. Um, the only time he could actually speak to me was on a plane ride from New York to, uh, from Pittsburgh back to New York. So I actually flew out to Pittsburgh, met him in his office. We went to the Pittsburgh airport and then flew back to New York together. And uh, he said to me, I need to find somebody who, that if I'm flying to California tomorrow, 
to make a speech that I want them to sit next to me on the plane as opposed to saying, fly me out tonight and fly them out tomorrow <laughs> morning. And that's what really gets, you know, is this somebody you want to hang out with? Is this somebody, and that's a huge part of this, the intangibles that go into this. I just want to put jump in here and say that that is what makes Josh King uh, so effective <laughs> at his job. And we don't spend a lot of time uh, on polyoptics here on, on POTUS talking about our day jobs, but uh, for people who know Josh and, and people who get a good sense of you from this show, uh, he's the kind of guy you want to be in a foxhole with and the kind of guy who uh, a CEO enjoys uh, moving around the country and the world with. Professionally speaking, by the way, it's the kinds of experiences that you gentlemen have had that make you interesting to have at a cocktail party, but also interesting to be the counselor to a CEO that the CEO wants to have. Um, I also, Josh and I have a little personal uh, bond over the notion. I also am a huge believer uh, in the whole liberal arts experience. And Josh, having gone to Swarthmore, I, I went to Gettysburg College. I mean, I believe in what those experiences lead to in terms of being able to be a broad thinker and speaker to uh to somebody that you're counseling. You know, Josh, uh, Josh King, to you, uh, one of the things that I find in, in my own practice and communications is that uh, as a consultancy, uh, oftentimes people, and this is different than what you do and different than what, what Bill has been talking about and what, uh, what, what, what corporations at that C-suite level are so often looking for, when it comes time for crisis or it comes time for a campaign, you do want to have that polyoptician who can be a part of that team. But it's very difficult for people in sort of not knowing what you, what you don't know or even if you're lucky enough to know what you don't know to appreciate that thinking things through straight down to what's, what you're going to see through that camera and how it's going to appear and, what, and seeing around that corner those types of experiences are critically important, but so hard oftentimes for people who don't do this on a daily basis, like campaigns do in the political world, to know that they need. Do you buy that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I and I think it's the mix of that and, uh, and the innate curiosity, endless curiosity about how the business world works. Uh, and mixing that, Adam, with understanding the most recent tools that are available. And that's what makes, I think, drawing from uh, political training so interesting in the most recent kind of political training. I mean, Chris Lehane was talking to us about the dark arts. And uh, I think it's, uh, in in the business world, it's called uh, uh, competitive intelligence uh, and figuring out how to use that intelligence. It's also about uh, how to mine the best resources from social media. Uh, you know, you have the Obama campaign that in 2012 will raise close to a billion dollars and figure out how to spend it over about a six-month period. And they're going to spend it on the most recent uh, social media, online video, uh, web, t uh, 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 mobile app tools that are around. And myself, as a corporate communication professional, these are the kinds of people that I'd like to get to know better because when that campaign is over, I think they can bring us incredible tools and insight into the corporate world as long as they can adjust their expectations about how exciting it's going to be, how many headlines it's going to generate the next day, because nothing will be like that that campaign experience. And Bill, have you seen people who have either done very well making that transition and understanding that 
things get a little slower and people have just sort of realized that this is not the right place for me. If you think about it, the core, what made you guys good at what you did, you really had passion for the issues, you had passion for the candidate, you had passion for what you were doing, you had passion for doing the right thing you know, for your country, and then you go to a corporation that's kind of plodding along, and it just doesn't seem quite as interesting. And by the way, if that corporation happens to have a mission that's not that interesting to you, in other words, if it's subject matter, if what it's selling, what it's doing is good, but it just doesn't float your boat, if you will, that's going to be that's going to be a problem. And those are that's exactly when those kinds of people get into these jobs. They get a little bored. They get a little antsy. Uh, they not they're not terribly effective managers. They've got other things that are on their on their minds other than getting their work done, and that becomes a becomes a problem. And again, because they've been dealing at the highest levels and dealing with the, the, their own egos, have got to get put in check when they step into that that corporate world because it's a different game that they play there. Polyoptics audience, alert, alert! You can you can take a horse to water, but you cannot make it drink. If you have not been to HeymanAssociates.com and you're a communicator, get there. You have just heard from the chairman of this executive search firm, the dean of uh, communications executive search firms. We're honored, uh, Bill Heyman, to have you on Polyoptics, and thank you for your insight and for what you do for everybody in our profession. Well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. You guys do a great job. Thanks, Bill. Well, Adam, this is the week where Mayor Mike Bloomberg of New York and his team at City Hall, working with Police Commissioner Ray Kelly, and the property owner at Zuccotti Park in New York, finally took action and cleared uh, Zuccotti Park for cleaning and is going to begin to enforce uh, the restrictions against camping out at the park. And, you know, I work down in lower Manhattan, and I walk past that park frequently, and I saw the campers for weeks and weeks. And it was in that context that I was so struck by the release from the Nixon Library of the 35 minutes of Dick DeBelt recording when President Nixon comes back to the White House after an early morning trip to the Lincoln Memorial and riffs on all of his feelings about leaving so early in the morning and coming face-to-face with protesters. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, that a president not known for being willing to engage with young people protesting, nevertheless, without telling his press secretary, Ron Ziegler, without telling the Secret Service, wanting to keep a minimal package as he goes out that early in the morning and stands face to face with the people who are protesting the Vietnam War. Is this a kind of activity that a, a President Mitt Romney would ever do today with in cer- similar circumstances with Occupy Wall Street? Well, that's a great question. I mean, this is a wonderful nugget of presidential history, and uh, you and I have had a chance to talk about it. I uh, embrace the, the recording, especially the old Dictabout recording, where you go on to hear uh, the president say that, he didn't want to have Ziegler with him, that uh, he'd never seen the Secret Service who were now hearing the commander-in-chief tell him to get your suit, you know, get your shoes on, boys, we're going to take a ride. It never looked so so fearful. But in the end, uh, besides any physical uh, peril that he may have faced, the only person who should have been worried was the president, and yet he wanted to reach out. And, and we hear through that whole 
uh, element of it that uh, his curiosity and then the conversation, there was not a good connection there. But it wasn't this hostile environment that you could imagine uh, with the Occupy movement that you're talking about. I don't know is the question with regard to whether a president, Romney, uh, would make uh, a trip like that. But I do wonder if candidate Romney would have the courage to go into the belly of the beast and have a conversation. These things can often be uh, a moment of leadership and understanding and reaching out that help to qualify you as more of a person than perhaps people had given you credit for being. Yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, Forty years after uh, after President Nixon recorded that, we get this much deeper nuance of the guy. He he went back, and I listened to the beginning of it, and he's telling us uh, uh, it should go to Haldeman, uh, Ehrlichman, uh, Kissinger too, and maybe send it to Hugh Seide, see if he wants to put a piece together for Time Magazine. No, no, strike that. Don't send it to Seide. Uh, he'll just mangle it up. And uh, but you do have him for 35 minutes showing this struggle that he had about trying to reach out to young people and uh, and see if there was common ground between his view of Vietnam and what they were thinking at the Lincoln Memorial. Well, that's ultimately what it's about, isn't it? This idea that uh, being in the bubble and being in the White House uh, so often can detach you from what's going on right outside on Pennsylvania Avenue or just across the mall. What a tour we've been on this uh, episode of Polyoptics as we head toward the Thanksgiving week. Uh, Chris Lehane about to uh, become a well-known screenwriter with uh, his new film, Night There's hope Fight. for you yet, King. Uh, there is. I've got my WGA card. I'd love to write some more episodes. And then uh, and then Bill Heyman and, uh, and this last conversation. So, Adam, great being with you on Polyoptics as usual. 